our elections are not run from like one big office in Washington, D.C. They are run at the state level and they're run in local precincts. And what it looks like when you add up all those local precincts is we need about a million people to sign up. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. And then later on the pod, we sat down with Chris Crawford, who is a policy advocate for Protect Democracy. Protect Democracy, along with Interfaith America, has just released a new resource titled Faith in Elections Playbook. It's a great conversation. Lots to talk about this week. So I hope that you enjoy the pod. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm all right. And you? Well, I'm a little irritated. Oh boy, what did I do? Because you just pulled me away from the Republican presidential <laughs> primary debate to record it was, with you. It was riveting, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, you were so disinterested. I finally said, do you want to go record or do you want to watch this? I so. think I'd rather be hung by my toenails than watch that. <laughs> So anyways, uh, we are back home. If our listeners caught last week's episode, we were on a big road trip Yep, and driving our son's car up to Boston, Massachusetts by way of Washington, D.C. and a couple of other stops along the way. And we kind of got to see history being made. Oh, on our trip from, from D.C. to Boston. That's right. Interesting location. It was complete happenstance. I don't know... I don't know. It seems like one of those things. It's not a well, unbeknownst to Missy, there's a little city between DC and Boston called New York City. Okay, <laughs> it is no secret. Shocker! My geography is terrible. <laughs> However, I didn't. I knew we were going through New York. I didn't realize we would be going right through the city. Yeah. So what happened? What happened was, uh-huh. I guess I don't remember what time it was, but we were crossing over. A bridge. Yes. I think was the George Washington. The George Washington Bridge in New York, yes. Right as news broke that George Santos was being expelled from Congress. Right? Right. That's exactly right. Did I say that right? You looked at me like I said that wrong. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about. So I was, you know, locating us on a map and I went on and I quick Googled his district and we really probably literally throw us down yeah. and, you know, hit his district. So it was just really kind of a, I don't know, we both were kind of awestruck by that, but also we'd been in a car for about 20 hours at that point. So <laughs> well, look at the big buildings, we look were, at the big bridge. <laughs> we were very easily entertained. So yeah, we um, in honor of George Santos being okay. expelled from Congress, no, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not. But I, I thought a fun game would be to play was this one of his <laughs> lies or not? Like a true okay. or false thing? This is going to be tough. No, here's the thing. When I started looking up all of the things he did, I couldn't come up with anything more <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. I all couldn't. Lies. So I have a fun little list. I'm just going to like check off here uh-huh. and, and just 
go over some of the things. I mean, most of these, you know, our listeners probably are aware of, but seeing it all. I mean, the, print, I mean, you, you kind of have to respect Santos because, I mean, it's either go big or go home. And he went really big with the lies. And just bizarre as well. <laughs> exactly. and, and so I will preface this before I just go down this litany by saying that, um, disclaimer, I mean, all of this is allegedly I yes. mean, some may not be, but we'll just go ahead and say that. GFM so lawyers may just say that. <laughs> right. Let me con- we don't consult with legal. What are you talking about? Come at me. Anyways, so I have, um, he allegedly lied about having Jewish grandparents, about losing employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting, about where he graduated from high school and college. He lied about running an, allegedly Pop that in there. Uh, running an animal charity, uh, working at Citigroup, owning a rental property, uh, lied to donors, then used their money to make purchases at Hermes and OnlyFans. <laughs> Which um, I did not know what wh- that was until the Santos scandal, by the way. I'm not sure what I still really don't know what it embarrassed is. Embarrassed <laughs> by that? We're proud of that. I don't know. Um, he lied about how he used campaign money um, and he used it for personal travel and Botox. I mean, don't we all? Well, yeah. It's you know, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, he lied to collect unemployment benefits, allegedly committed identity theft, uh, reimbursed himself for loans he didn't make. He lied about working on Wall Street. We probably all know the story about him swindling a, a disabled vet whose dog was dying, which is very sad, mm-hmm. very awful. Um, he may have ripped off an Amish dog breeder with a bad check. His uh, grandmother was not a Holocaust victim, as he claimed. It is somewhat unclear if his mom died as a result of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. He, uh, his niece, he lied about his niece being kidnapped and also muddled into this is there's some, um, I don't know, some information or some fuzzy claims about him appearing on Hannah Montana being a drag queen, a Broadway <laughs> producer, and a journalist in Brazil. So Okay, the most, out of all of that, I think I'm most shocked about the Hannah Montana allegation. I know. But, but here's the thing. I, I just read all of this. Obviously, if you want to go find details or specifics about any one of these things, go do it. But all that to say, there was no way I could come up with anything that was like not factual for you to... Yeah, the, like, you know, there's nothing crazier than what he actually did. There was Allegedly nothing. did. But do you know what I just found out today that he's doing now? Oh, he's doing that... Uh, like answer call or happy birthday thing or something like that. What's that called? Okay. So the next website you need to know about after OnlyFans. <laughs> no, I don't need to know about no. that, but go ahead. <laughs> is Cameo. Cameo. Okay. I guess you pay a fee uh-huh. um, and you to a celebrity and then they call you or record a FaceTime message or something. I, we I'm could so do super, this. Missy. Okay. This you, you just totally <laughs> just flew it out of the water. Took my punchline. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Way she looks so dejected right now. <laughs> this is not the first time this in 27 like years of marriage. <laughs> six minute build up to this announcement. And you just, just took it took away it from away. me. <laughs> well, so this should be evidence to the listeners that we don't script anything. <laughs> no. Well, one of us came with notes. Did you? It's no. all up here. It's all, I'm pointing okay. at my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you pay and then your favorite celebrity or whoever you pay and yeah. they basically are ranked based, 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know who sets the pricing, right. but apparently his price for a cameo message has doubled today. Oh, I'm sure. Yesterday. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. um, so, so you guys, if you want a message from George Santos, you better hurry up and pay for it now because apparently- <laughs> Prices are go- surge pricing. His stock surge is going pricing up is going and on. he is now currently making more on cameo than the $174,000 a year he was oh making. Oh my gosh, that is I so mean, ridiculous. Crime does pay, Missy. It really pays. Well, this is what I've always said. <laughs> 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 so anyways okay so we're gonna switch gears okay we lost a legend this week we did we i mean we lost rosalind carter yeah. a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and now this week we just lost norman lear yeah yeah mr lear was one of our favorites here in the randall household he uh obviously i grew up uh watching a lot of his shows from um all in the family to the Jeffersons and good times. I mean, they were all just so outstanding. Mod uh, was just really a revolutionary when it came to the utilization, not only of being a good storyteller, but using media as a transformative tool, interpreting society and asking some really hard questions of society. He was just brilliant in doing it. He really did. And I was, as I was reading, I just saw, I mean, as articles were quoting him and I just pulled a few that, that I just really loved as we just, you know, we're kind of making light of a very, I mean, awful situation with George Santos, Mm -hmm. but just finding laughter. And one of his quotes is, the soundtrack of my life has been laughter. Oh, and I thought, what an amazing thing to be able to say. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope that at the end of the day, I can say that at least for most of the time. <laughs> Trust us, we're all laughing at you. I mean, we're laughing okay, with you. Okay. <laughs> um, and he said, um, "Each man is my superior in that I may learn from him." Oh, I thought, wow, that's a really great way to look at life. Yeah. That you can learn something from everyone that you encounter. And he was such, I mean, you know, obviously an icon in Hollywood and all across the entertainment industry just because of his groundbreaking work. But we got to learn a, a little about him behind the scenes because he attended Emerson College where our oldest attended. Mm-hmm. And one of the great stories that we heard about Mr. Lear is his passion for working with students. Mm-hmm. And he would come back on campus occasionally and talk to the students and about their crafts and really was inspirational. I mean, when I say that, you know, he was a spry 85, 90 years old when he was doing this. Uh, but we come back and just be an inspiration to all these a new generation of writers. Yeah, he was in his late 90s mm-hmm. when our son met him through a, a big celebration on yeah. campus. And, and yeah, that was a really cool experience, but he just, he was amazing. And I was going to, the other idea I had was to make you play a game where you list as many Norman Lear shows as you can. Oh, I think I just did, didn't I? There's like a, over a <laughs> yeah. hundred of them. I was like, well, that's not going to be any fun because I don't, I mean, I won't be able to, to check you off on right. that. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and piggyback on what you said about the way he was able to speak to society and um, he in an interview was talking about how his father was kind of the inspiration for the Archie Bunker character. And he said, you know, the intention was to show that there's humor in everything. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think he did. Like you 
mentioned, he was able to expose, you know, societal ills and tensions in such a way that was entertaining, but was a mirror to what yeah. we were going through. And and he um, then later or in nineteen early eighties started an organization called People for the American Way, and I pulled this from their website because I think it it speaks to a lot of what we are trying to do and promote at good faith media. And I say that to say, you know, he, I mean, truly was a prophet as I was reading more about him. He just was a modern day prophet. The things that he was able to see and glean and write and show us. Um, But he started this organization called people for the American way at a time when core American values were being undermined by the emerging religious right political movement. Sounds a little familiar, huh? Yeah. <laughs> its leaders weaponized media platforms with claims that the only, quote, real Americans were people who shared their religious beliefs and political worldview. Norman, a Jewish American and World War II vet, knew how wrong they were. He recruited people of many faiths and political backgrounds, including the late Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, to join him in saying, that's not the American way. Wow. Isn't I mean, that cool? Yeah, just a brilliant man. And uh, we're all going to miss him. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sad. I yeah. mean, just really, really sad. Yeah. So we've lost two giants in the last couple of weeks yeah. um, in terms of just incredible, I mean, profits. Right. I mean, truly. Sure. So lots of news this week. Uh, obviously, Santos' ex- expulsion from Congress, losing of two incredible icons here in America, uh, lots of other stories that we just don't have time to get to this week. But something broke this week that I've got to ask you about. And this question has connections to good faith media, because I know there's somebody listening who really wants to know your opinions on the news. Oh, it broke. No. I have no idea where this is going. Time magazine announced their person of the year. Oh, I saw that. And it's Taylor Swift. I saw that. And, and honestly, I have not delved into it. The only thing that I stopped long enough to read was somebody talking about only a few women have ever held mm-hmm. that title, and I think yeah. maybe eight. Yeah, it's, it's and, very few. And like three of them have had to share the title with other people, yeah. and so th- there was kind of that angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I haven't read much about it, but yes, I have <laughs> seen the headlines. So. Our social media director, creative designer at Good Faith Media. Was she the one who nominated her? <laughs> I think <laughs> Callie Chisholm from Knoxville, Tennessee, actually nominated Taylor to be the person of the I year. I mean, she so, wasn't on anyone else's radar, yeah. clearly. <laughs> and, and Callie is, uh, you know, kind of a tech genius here at Good Faith Media. So I'm not certain. Maybe she rigged the vote. Uh, <laughs> she may also cut this out because you just told her name and location. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but she's a big. Big Swifty and uh, keeps us up to date on everything Taylor Swift. And uh, I just thought it was really exciting. And, you know, what was funny, and I can't remember if we talked about this on the pod or not, but I think it was a couple of months ago, we were over in uh, Arkansas at Greer's Ferry Lake Mm -hmm. with a bunch of our friends over there just having a, a good time. Uh, just fellowshipping and, and talking with uh, with colleagues and good friends. And the topic of Taylor Swift came up. And there was this 
back patio of middle-aged to senior adult men talking about the greatness of Taylor Swift. I think you were the youngest one. Oh, I think I was. Yeah, I was the kid in the group. No, uh, definitely. But it was just, it, it goes to just the realization about how iconic she really is. Yeah, she's really incredible. And she really is incredible. A lot of people say she saved the American economy this last summer. <laughs> well, at least the chief's economy. <laughs> well, she did that. There's no doubt about that. So, uh, you know, props to Taylor Taylor yeah, Swift. Congrats, and, uh, Taylor. We were really worried you yeah. won't, weren't quite going to yeah. arrive, but you you have. And now. see, Callie, I did get it into the pod this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, Missy, you and I got to sit down with Chris Cross this week. He's a policy advocate for Protect Democracy and uh, had a great conversation. Uh, Protect Democracy, along with Interfaith uh, America, has a new resource out for voters called Faith in Elections Playbook. And uh, it's really interesting, just great, practical, tangible ways that people can be involved in their local elections. Absolutely. Such an important conversation. And stay tuned because in the outro, I have a great voting story. Wonderful. Stay tuned. I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading, the stories we don't want to tell in church. I'm Brett Harrison. That's What You've Never Read This, a new series from God Knows Where, is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us, but I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Chris Crawford is a policy advocate at Protect Democracy. His work is focused on ensuring free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power, including advocating for reforms of the Electoral Count Act and staffing the National Task Force on Election Crises. He has a bachelor's degree in political science from the George Washington University and a master's degree in nonprofit administration from the University of Notre Dame. Protect Democracy, along with partnering organization Interfaith America, America released a new resource titled Faith in Elections Playbook. Chris, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you very much for having me. So Chris, let's, before we get started on our deeper conversation, just tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about your organization. Sure. So Protect Democracy is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that is focused on American democracy and especially ensuring that our form of government does not slide into any form of authoritarianism. And we work with people across the political spectrum to ensure that our elections run smoothly, that we support the rule of law and a number of other areas to just protect American democracy. Well, Chris, we're really excited about the playbook. First of all, congratulations. It seems like a an incredible success as we head into a very important election year. We've already had several elections uh, here at the end of 2023, but as everybody knows, 2024 is going to be a big year here in the United States. So uh, congrats on the playbook. The press release that you sent to Good Faith Media states, in a time of deep division in our nation and distrust in our elections, organized people of faith have the power to help bring our country together and keep us on the path toward peace during the upcoming election period. Now, Chris, 
Time of deep division in our nation, distrust in our elections. I don't know what you're talking about. So please, please do tell us what's going on in the country and why, indeed, this playbook is so important right now. The way that I've been thinking about this is that if you think about when our communities across the country face challenges, when there's a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado, some big challenge, some of the first people you see on the scenes helping people are individual people of faith, as well as faith institutions, faith-based nonprofits. And what we would like to see is a similar movement of people in the 2024 election to help our communities as we prepare to vote and we go through what will be a divisive and challenging election. I think when you look at the numbers related to trust in our elections, when you look at the numbers of people who say they might support political violence or an authoritarian candidate in some cases, we should recognize that we are facing the equivalent of an earthquake in our democracy and that at this moment, people of faith can play an important role as we do in other areas to help hold our communities together, help call people to higher ground and make an impact in a positive way. Well said. Now, Mrs. got a follow-up question here in a second, but before she asks that question, I want to talk a little bit about what I read on your website and saw and listened to on some of the videos. Um, this is, the way you just articulated it was extremely important because of the delicate and tentative form of government that we've chosen to self-govern ourselves called democracy. And, but it is a brilliant and well-constructed form of government, but it's in danger. And in one of the videos I was watching on your website protect democracy is the significance at which our democracy hangs in the balance that it's the attitudes towards democracy have been in decline over the last few decades here in the United States and around the world. So looking back upon what happened and transpired in our last presidential election and the insurrection that played out before our eyes on January 6th after the election, I think, and at least I hope, we understand the significance and dangers that democracy faces. But another thing that your website and institution does is also point out how people stood in the gap to protect democracy. Talk a little bit more about that. I think that's one of the underrated stories about what we've seen in 2020 and the time since then, is that you have individuals who stood up and fulfilled their duty, fulfilled their um, pledge to the voters and to the institutions that they represented. And also people who stood up to say, there are things that need to be fixed and things that we will step up and fix. One thing that we've worked on at Protect Democracy was updating the Electoral Count Act, which is the very old law that governs the way we cast and count electoral votes. And that was sort of the thing on January 6th that some individuals were trying to take advantage of to overturn the results of the election. And we had people from across the political spectrum advocating for changes to the Electoral Count Act. And then a bipartisan group of senators, um, dozens of senators co-sponsored the legislation in the end 
to make that update to the Electoral Count Act and make the 2024 election more secure than the 2021. And that's just one example. I think there are also so many examples of people, if you look back at the 2020 election, we were voting in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an extremely divisive time, and you still had people stepping up to work at the polls. Mm -hmm. You still had people stepping up to drive their neighbors to be able to vote to help make updates to our system to make sure people could vote from home in a secure way that still respected the integrity of the election. And I think there are these areas of hope that we can see of people who have stepped up just in the last few years to preserve our democracy. And part of what we're trying to do with this playbook is to make it even easier for people to do that, and especially for people of faith to do that as we look forward to another challenging time in 2024. So, Chris, there are six opportunities that are listed in the playbook. Um, one is address polarization, share trustworthy information, support voters, recruit poll workers, offer to find polling locations, and build relationships. And so what I think is so great about this list is that every one of these are tangible things that everyone can do. Practical tasks, we can all participate. So let's go through a couple specifically. And the first one I want to um, ask about are um, some suggestions you can give listeners regarding reading and sharing tr trustworthy information. And then what is your advice on how to respond or rather not respond to those who are spreading misinformation? First on the big picture, one thing that I like about having all of these different options here for folks is that we really want to provide a menu of options for people and to meet them where they are so they can take action in line with their values, their skill sets, and the context of what's most important in their communities. And we recognize that for some groups that we work with a lot, they'll look at this list and say, this is the bare minimum of what we're going to do. There's not enough here. And for them, great. Just We will make it easier to take that first step. And then you can go do some of the other items that you want to do in the lead up to the election but also recognizing for other organizations, just doing one piece of one of these six things will push the envelope and will be challenging for leaders of some faith-based institutions to even take that one step. Mm -hmm. So we wanna meet people right where they are and be as useful as we can for them. I'll say on trustworthy information, we are gonna be in an even more difficult information environment as technology develops. Um, as we look at the 2024 election. So you're going to have information coming from all different directions. And one thing that's helpful, I think, in this guide is that we are especially pointing people to share information from their local government, from trusted resources, so that when there's information out there, people know where to turn. Because it's really challenging in the middle of an election when there's so much information coming in so many different directions, if you're just trying to bat down all of the different pieces of misinformation, that can be really complicated and really difficult. But if you can teach people where to look for trusted information, then they can block out the noise and say, well, I read this thing on Facebook. I'm going to look at my local election office and see what they're saying about the election. And I think this is especially important in communities that are targeted by misinformation and disinformation. In past elections, there have been cases where people have called especially into um, black communities and tried to uh, disenfranchise people by giving them the wrong information about the day to vote or saying that 
there would be some penalty if they showed up at the polls or voted by mail or something like that. So it's really important to teach people where they can find trustworthy information so they can do that on their own and know where to turn. Wow. So that's a big help because, you know, in this day and age, especially even four years ago, AI has not, you know, had not developed or at least become mainstream as it is today. And, you know, with the, uh, the use of AI and the ability to manufacture data now that sounds very, very similar uh, to the organizations that we all believe are trustworthy. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting year as we see a lot of these things unfold. And the protections mm-hmm. and advice that you have given, I think, are, are very, very important. One of the things I want to go back to what you just said, Chris, about democracy is that you talk about the bare bones and some of the, some people will look at this and say, well, this is just the bare minimum that people can do. But here's the reality about democracy. A lot of times we talk about democracy as this philosophical political ideal, but the reality democracy is an invitation Mm. and it's an invitation to participate. And everything that the playbook outlines is an invitation to not only to participate in this act of democracy, that we have a responsibility to continue this self-governance, which means we need to be involved and engaged. And so this playbook lines that out. And as simple as being a volunteer at one of these polls is so important because that is a tool within democracy itself. If we don't have those volunteers, then democracy begins to crumble. So thank you for the invitation and the reminder. That's very well said. I still um, don't know what we're going to do with a crazy Uncle Frank at Thanksgiving when he starts talking about I disinformation. Mean, <laughs> that's going to be number Here's seven the on the opportunity. What to do about Uncle Frank? <laughs> well, here's, the thing. here's the thing about crazy Uncle Frank as we think about people like him. As I also think those of us who care about democracy should be calling people in to be part of the solution. So something that I would love to see with this playbook is to reach people who might be skeptical of the way our elections are run and to tell them, if you have questions, here's where you can go to get them answered. Mm -hmm. If you aren't sure about the way your elections are run, why don't you reach out to your elections office and ask the questions and get answers to them? If you think that your elections aren't being run the right way in your town for some reason, sign up to work with the polls, go through the rigorous training that you go through and go see what it's like to work at a polling location. There was an article recently, um, I forget which outlet it was, but there was a man who was a big election election skeptic and he was sharing information online about how he didn't trust elections. Then he signed up to be a poll worker. And since that time, he is now an advocate for letting people know how secure the integrity of his elections are. So I think having some sort of calling in for people to be part of the process can increase their trust and really try to turn some of these dynamics around. And that's a little bit of what I'm talking about, trying to meet people where they are, mm-hmm. as frustrating as the Uncle Franks of the world can be sometimes. <laughs> so there's there's a list, there's a group of opportunities <laughs> dealing specifically with Election Day, mm-hmm. um, supporting voters, recruiting poll workers, and helping locate polling locations. Um, our younger son actually did volunteer as a poll worker, um, and the last presidential election during COVID because they were, you know, begging for young people who weren't as vulnerable to COVID. And it was a really meaningful experience 
for him and, and it was just a great thing. Yeah. For him to get exposure and to see that process play out. So talk to us us about how big of a need these things are on election day and why, you know, people of faith do make great volunteers. Absolutely. This is so important because if our elections don't have enough people working to administer them, you're going to have fewer polling locations, longer lines, and just a worse experience for voters. Our elections are not run from like one big office in Washington, D.C. They are run at the state level and they're run in local precincts. And what it looks like when you add up all those local precincts is we need about a million people to sign up in one way or another to work at polling locations on Election Day and during early voting. And this is something that I think if you think about the enormous network of faith based institutions, hundreds of thousands of organizations, if we can mobilize even one part of these organizations and these institutions to say we are community minded, we care about our communities, we care about our democracy, and we want to step up and serve our communities in this way. I think faith communities almost alone by sheer numbers could put a huge dent in the number of poll workers that we would need. And I think faith communities are also embedded in the fabric of a community. And so I think the witness, from the perspective as a Christian, I think it would be a good witness to show up in that way and to be a friendly face, see this as a way to serve your community. I think that could be really powerful for our democracy as well as the witness for Christians. So there was a little nugget too on the website, I'm going to throw in a side here, about um, taking pizza to the polls. And so if I remember correctly, it was, you know, delivering that to folks waiting in line. Is that right? So what about those places that are trying to forbid people from doing things like that? Yeah, because this is a really big question legally. Because, yeah. I mean, like even giving out bottles of water, right. whether it's pizza or water, uh, to people who are standing in lines, what is the line there? Are there places that yeah. have actually forbid that? And what's the workaround? What can we do to make sure that people are able to get, like, you know, if they're in line for a long time, have access to mm-hmm. water or something to eat or whatever it is? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One of the things that we do throughout this playbook is to say, if you have any questions, check with your election officials. And before you do anything, check the rules in your local context, because that's another thing about having polling locations throughout the country and county by county even might have, you might have different rules um, on this topic. What's helpful is you mentioned pizza to the polls, they are an organization, just to give a quick overview of who they are, it's this nonprofit organization that has an app where if there's a long line at a polling location, you use this app and get a pizza delivered. So if people are hungry in line and might have to leave because they're hungry, a pizza shows up and it helps people to have a more positive experience, not have to get out of line in order to have a meal. And I think it's just a cool concept. I've asked them if it's possible, if I'm filling out my mail-in ballot at home, if I can order a pizza. <laughs> they say you that. Um, but they have a helpful guide that we used as part of our own guide mm-hmm. that outlines some of the steps to take to make sure that you are following the rules. It does vary state by state, county by county. Most places do allow handing out food or water there are specific rules about where you can do that and when you can do that. Mm -hmm. And so I would just encourage folks, I can't really give a blanket answer on that, Mm -hmm. but 
you can look on our website at the guide, and then you can also just check in your local context. That seems which like is a, the answer to a lot of these questions. I was gonna say, that seems like a great way for churches, like you suggested, to be involved because a lot of our churches are actually polling locations. And so that would be a great service project for that location to find out what are our rules here and how can we be of service to the people who are waiting. Yeah, because I would assume, Chris, that this goes uh, goes along with the the program a long time ago of bringing souls to the polls that many churches would gather. Mm-hmm. People would gather at their church and they would take a bus to the polling place uh, so that they could vote that you just have to check with your local officials to see if that's something that can be done. I don't understand why that couldn't be done. Um, you know, I know some places have outlawed Sunday voting now, but <laughs> uh, for that very reason, but, uh, but so basically your advice is check with your local polling places and election officials. Right. And I can give a couple of other um, pieces of advice here, just reading directly from the guidance that we have on the website. One thing is just ensuring the very first thing on here is ensure that 501c3 organizations can hand out water and food at polling locations. Mm -hmm. In most places that don't allow that, the polling location itself will provide. So it's usually not that voters are just left without any sort of resources. And then also figuring out where you can and can't stand. So polling locations have restricted zones where you're not allowed to be. Don't be in those places. You also have to offer food and drink to anyone and everyone at a given polling location, whether or not they're even going to vote or have voted. That gets you out of a number of different potential legal challenges. Um, And then don't talk to anyone about voting. This is just about you are in a location Mm. providing sustenance to people. Don't wear anything with any messaging related to the election. Um, Don't say anything about voting. You're just there to provide food and water um, to the people who are there. Yeah, great advice. The final opportunity the playbook suggests is building relationships with local election officials. So what kind of direct engagement does the playbook recommend between local election officials and faith-based organizations? This is something that I think can be really powerful um, as a civic example across the country, because election officials are under so much stress right now. They in large part because of the conspiracy theories after the 2020 election, they are being threatened. They are facing shortages of resources in some cases. It's just such a challenging job right now. And I think they would really benefit from community members reaching out to them and trying to partner with them, trying to be part of the solution, trying to be ambassadors for our election system to the public and to bring the questions that the public has to the election officials. And like I said, elections are run by the states. They're not run from Washington, D.C. So this is really an opportunity for local organizations to partner with local governments and try to have a conversation about what voting look like looks like in these given communities. There are some organizations that are starting to put together tables of people to meet with election officials. There's a benefit there of both trying to be part of the solution and also ensuring that they are doing their jobs well and that they are not incidentally disenfranchising voters in any way. So there's this two-way relationship to ensure the integrity of our elections, that everyone has the opportunity to vote, and that we're building trust. Because one of the most important things in my view is that 
if you can have groups of faith leaders having these meetings with election officials and building understanding and trust for the next year or so, when, if a crisis arises in the election, these people know each other. Mm -hmm. So if you have pastors who have built this relationship of trust with an election official and have been communicating to their congregation about their trust in the elections, when members of that congregation are then going to the pastor with questions of, or conspiracy theories, there's already a relationship there and information can be shared more easily. And I think that trust can be crucial to building trust across the country. Well said. So Chris, before we ask you our final question for the day, I want to ask you this just from a theological standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint. Um, I grew up Baptist, particularly grew up Southern Baptist in a traditional Southern Baptist sense, uh, morphed into what is now called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. All that to say is I've got a strong sense of separation between church and state. Sometimes on a local level, when we talk about organizations like local churches getting involved in election day processes or engagement, some within my tradition cringe at that because they have been taught such a str- such a strong stance on separation of church and state. Can you explain to those in the audience who may have a raised eyebrow right now about what we're talking about, why this does not violate separation of church and state. It is actually a good thing as we see the church and state actually working together for the betterment of the common good. Absolutely. And this is a question that we have gotten a lot. And I think one of the things to recognize here is that those of us who advocate for this role of faith communities have to look at our politics and understand why there is this skepticism and the ways that people have weaponized their faith in our public life in ways that make people skeptical and make people concerned. So I think I want to start from that standpoint of recognizing the validity of that question. But I would also say our religious institutions play such an important role in our day-to-day lives and in our civic life. And They're deeply rooted in our communities. They're often places that people turn to when they're in need. They're how people come together to serve their community. And they do play an important role. And I think we need all hands on deck in this moment. And I think we should not rule out institutions that a majority of the country turn to for meaning in their lives just because they happen to be religious. And I actually think there's an opportunity here for those of us that care about our democracy and are members of faith-based communities to provide a positive example for something that is pro-social, politically neutral, and just about serving our democracy. Because every freedom that we value, including our religious freedom, depends upon free and fair elections, depends upon the institutions of our democracy. So if we don't step up at this moment we have so much to lose. And I think the people who value our democracy, whether you're religious or not, have so much to lose if we cannot have a free and fair election. So all of us should be asking for all hands on deck in this moment. 
Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly this week. The organization that he represents is Protect Democracy. You can find more about Chris's work and Protect Democracy's work at protectdemocracy.org. But Chris, before we let you go, we've got one last question that we ask every one of our guests. So at this time, I'm going to turn it over to Missy. So Chris, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? I think the last thing I would like to say is that as important as discerning the right way to vote in 2024 will be, if voting is your only action to preserve democracy, you're not doing enough. I think we all have to find our own one more thing to be doing related to the 2024 election and to preserve our democracy. So that's my encouragement for your listeners. I love that. Kind of fits into that there's more to tell. There's more to do uh, right. to protect democracy. So, Chris, thank you so much. Make, make certain that you check out this playbook at their website, protectdemocracy.org. Just click on the playbook, Faith and Elections Playbook, and you can find out all the information that we've been talking about here today. Chris, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. See, one of the things I really appreciated about our conversation with Chris was just the tangible, really practical ways that this playbook encourages everyday citizens to be engaged in this thing we call democracy. Because sometimes we get so inundated with the big policy issues, the big policy debates, that we forget what really makes democracy work are the citizens who volunteer and really are engaged in the process itself. And so I really appreciated Chris's conversation and these two great organizations putting this new resource together for us. I agree. And I am very embarrassed to admit, I feel like I'm always admitting um, being late to the party on certain issues, but I, I admit to being late to kind of the, the needed passion for voting. I right. don't remember. I remember being pretty indifferent when I turned 18. I did not register to vote right when I turned 18. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed how long it took me to get there. And I now am so invested in encouraging people to vote and going to vote. And I think what you guys talked about in the interview was so important is you can vote and you know, vote and do something. And like I talked about, you know, our son that worked at the polls um, in 2020 um, during COVID because they were just begging for young people who weren't quite so vulnerable to COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's so um, interesting. Today I was cleaning out some things in his room and I found his, he had saved his name tag from that day. Oh, really? I didn't know that, but That's I great. found it on his yeah. little bulletin board and it, you know, I don't know. I just thought it just showed me that he was really proud of that experience as, as much as we were proud of him as well. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what you were saying a moment ago about, you know, we grew up, we were kids of the seventies and eighties. Uh, there wasn't a lot of emphasis and I want to attribute that to kind of the uh, environment of privilege that we had. Mm -hmm. We weren't kids of the Vietnam era. Uh, that generation was highly involved in politics, trying to bring about social change, uh, marching for rights and 
uh, you know, trying to bring the Vietnam War to a close, just a, a lot, you know, civil rights also was on the end of that, workers' rights. Um, but we grew up in a really st- stable era, well, as stable I, in, as can in be. In our little in our, Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Yes, in, in our little bubble. We the, weren't aware of what was going on in, in the next neighborhoods over. We just weren't. Right. And so there was a disconnect. Um, but there's been a re-engagement, as you articulated about our kids and our kids' generations and their involvement. They have such an incredible view uh, and understanding of the sociopolitical world today, much more so than you and I ever did at their age. And we have some really robust conversations with them. Yeah, so it's it it's interesting that we, I mean, a year almost a year ago, uh, met a, a young woman named Taylor Coleman mm-hmm. who, uh, during COVID, left her job in Washington D.C., moved home to Houston, I think, yeah. and spent you know quarantine, converting a van into her home, and she now her whole life's work is driving around the country and registering voters. Yeah, it's remarkable. That is what she does. In the beginning, we talked about Norman Lear and starting the People for the American Way organization with Barbara Jordan. And Taylor has named her van Barb yeah. after Barbara <laughs> Jordan. So it's kind of interesting how these all were all knitted together somehow. So yeah. um, I really admire her, her for doing that. If you guys aren't aware of her, follow her on Instagram. She's, it, it's just re- very inspirational. Like you said, to see this age, mm-hmm. um, age group, but I promised a voting story yes! at the beginning. I've been waiting. So I with wanna, bated breath. I know. So I'm going to tell my, like I said, in the beginning, I, was not passionate about voting as a young person. I'm embarrassed to admit that. Mm-hmm. I once I did register to vote, though I've been consistent and have been a dedicated voter. Yes, right. Dedicated yes, you have because we have the stickers to prove it. <laughs> I know they're all over the place, and I um, so much so because I have to. I don't know what is it. What is it called when you have to like repay? The, I mean, penance. What is it? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Although I will say, Offer penance. I will say I might not have been passionate about voting in our nation's elections, mm-hmm. but you didn't miss a controversial vote in the Baptist church. <laughs> no, you did not. I mean, right. I mean, revival would break out before big business meetings because Anytime. the only way you could vote is if you were a baptized believer. And, so. and, and, and people would bring their kids and, and their, yeah, everybody to vote. And bus, buses would show up from across town. That's Anytime what, the sanctuary <laughs> was full on a Sunday or a Wednesday night, you knew they were voting. Something's something about controversial. to happen. Absolutely. So there, so yeah. So that aside, anyway, so my my kind of voting story is you rem- will remember this when I start talking about it, but several years ago you were out of town and late one night I was home by myself and started having some stomach pain mm-hmm. and I just knew something was not right. Right. I called a friend and actually messaged my doctor and she said, yeah, go on to the ER. And I call, had to call a friend. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I wasn't going to take an Uber. <laughs> and I called a friend. I'm like, hey, can you take me up to the ER? Something's not right. Yeah. They've got these new things called ambulances. <laughs> but uh, oh, you're too cheap to take an ambulance. So go ahead. I am t- I w- if I was too cheap to take an Uber, I was certainly too cheap to take an ambulance. That is true. I'll tell that story another time. Anyways. Um, so my friend comes, takes me to the emergency room. And turns out it was my appendix. Yeah. So they admitted me. I stayed overnight. You were still out of town. 
Um, I, of course, let you know what was going on. You booked an earlier flight, got home as quick as you could, and literally walked into the ER or pre-op with your massive suitcase of camera equipment <laughs> I did. Um, and arrived just in time before I had surgery. So I had surgery that afternoon or something to, to mm-hmm. remove my appendix. And as, as they do now, basically, you, once you wake up, you get kicked you out, You get right? kicked out, right. And we didn't even have a car at the no. hospital because you had, had Ubered yeah. from the airport. I thought so we I was going to have to give you a piggyback ride all the way home. I know. So we had to call a friend and be like, hey, can you come pick us up on the, <laughs> on the way home? Because we were at a, a hospital that was about 40 minutes away from our house. Uh. So anyways, we were on our way home and I, again not realizing what day it was or what was going on, we pulled into our neighborhood and I saw the vote here signs at our (laughs) polling place. And I was like, oh, shoot, it's voting day. Like I had forgotten. I was still had just enough pain medication in my system. I was like, let's pull it and vote. (laughs) It wasn't a presidential election or anything like that. So I knew the line, there wouldn't be a line. We could just pop in and Mm -hmm. vote and do that. So I just, just so I could have this story I mean, in. You, you make so many sacrifices for this show. I, I do. I, like I said last week, I am a giver. You are a giver. I am a giver. So we uh, had our friend pull us into the parking lot of our polling place <laughs> and me with still the like stickers from the EKG and the IV and all the stuff. <laughs> we all, yeah, your, your hospital band. hospital bracelet, all yeah. of this. Walk in and I voted and got the sticker and put it on and came back home. So yeah. I just, so just so I could like have this story have no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> you are a real citizen. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Miss America. That's right. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Well, we appreciate Chris coming on, and uh, we really want to encourage you to check out their website and the resource and playbook. Uh, it is really, really helpful. Lots of great practical ways that you and me, you can be involved in your local elections. And we need everybody uh, because going into 2024, there's going to be a lot going on this year, as uh, we've already indicated. And so uh, be engaged. Don't disengage. Stay engaged because you can make the difference. It seems like I could propose at this point that Good Faith Media offers a paid day of leave for employees who go work their polls. Oh, I like that That's a lot. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. Are you going to go work it? <laughs> sure. Can I verify that? Sure. <laughs> of course. I'll go do that, but I think that's a great idea for businesses to do. No, I think that is a good idea. Great suggestion. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll submit that to, is it HR? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, Missy and I will be back next week uh, with another guest. And uh, we're going to be on the road a little bit, but uh, we'll let you know what's going on. But uh, exciting things happening. Until next week, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.